I'm moving forward, assuming that you believe that if matter and energy and time and meaning is created, it cannot be created by us. So if we're believing there's a creator God, and then he has an intended design in all of us, in humanity, then that, therefore, our truth does not evolve. It instead reveals itself over time. Does that make sense? So our truth cannot evolve to fit social concepts. Instead, our truth and our identity reveals itself over time. Identity is not something that we create as human people, but instead something that we apprehend. Something that we apprehend. We don't create it. We don't give ourselves our own identity or meaning. We, we go after it. We apprehend it over time. So God shows us, this is what we've been through, God shows us the definition of what love is. That's, that's the content we've covered. The definition of of his way of loving and what that love looks like and that love is going to only be revealed through the truth the truth of who jesus is the truth of who he is and the truth of god's word and the spirit reveals that to us so far so good right and the truth that we learn through love is our identity okay so those three heavy hitters therefore we can now conclude <laughs> that our identity is not meant to be dictated by our feelings or the feelings of others. If it's not something we create, if it's something we apprehend, and if it comes through the caveat of love that is the truth of God's word authoritatively and absolute over our life, then our feelings can, can give us a, um, a gauge, but they cannot be our guide. Now, I know some of y'all may not just let that hit you, but I just walloped you in the face. You realize that, right? Because every time you're saying, you made me feel, I just took that out of your language box. Well, you made me feel this. Or, well, I felt this way, so therefore I compromised. I felt like he wouldn't love me if I didn't let him have sex with me. I felt like if I didn't just, you know, drink with them and keep drinking with them, then maybe they'd never come to know the Lord. So I just kept drinking with them and I didn't drink too much. So what I'm, what I'm asking you to see now and to reckon with is that now our feelings have been leveled. They're, they're, they are helpful. They are important. They are obviously given to us by God because they're all over the scripture. I mean, come on. Bipolar, manic depression, anxiety. David pretty much was all of those things. He's kind of at the top. But you know, I mean, it's there. You have an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations that is someone in depression, crying out in sadness and lamenting and grieving with the Lord. So our feelings are important, but they are to guide us. So even in our depression or seasons of anxiety or, or, or overwhelming sadness, they are meant to point us back to the truth of who we are. God is using our feelings to tell us the truth, not to overtake us, not to overcome us, and not to dictate our choices. So a lot of times one of my therapy tactics will say is, did that feeling make a choice for you? 
That's kind of a, a, you know, if we're talking about a situation, we'll say, did your feeling make that choice or did your identity make that choice? What just made that choice for you? So that's, that's good for us to do. Again, I've, I've been talking about if God gave us all of these promises that we looked at thoroughly, then, then surely he set us up to be able to do them. If really in Philippians 4, he says, do not be anxious about anything, <laughs> then he therefore gave us the spirit to help us actually not be anxious about anything. That's, that can be your reality. And those of you who struggle with severe anxiety, there is no condemnation for that. But there is so much hope for that. You actually can live in a quality of life where you do not have anxiety. That is what he is saying he is offering to you. Okay, so I want to look at how this plays out because love is always going to have three things. Love is always going to have provision, purpose, and perimeter. So in our lovingness of other people, and as God loves us, you're always going to see these three things in play, which therefore tells us what our identity is. So if love is required, if these three things are required for love, then therefore I am needy because I need provision. If I have purpose, if love tells me I am actually meaningful and made for purpose, then I am actually chosen. I'm not rejected. I'm not cast out. I always, always, whether man rejects me is one thing, but I always have a seat at God's table. Always. He always wants me. He's always coming after me. Period. And also, if there is a perimeter, therefore loving boundaries and loving guidelines that we live inside love so that we don't run into the street, when my three-year-old is learning the boundaries of our home, there's a fence line and a guardrail, and I would be an unloving parent to let her run into the street with oncoming traffic. Same principle. We are spiritually immature and childlike in our faith sometimes, so God gives us perimeter because he loves us and he doesn't want us to get crushed. All right, so that's how we're looking at his love. So therefore, our identity is, I do not define my reality because I need perimeters. So I cannot decide when I get to move the boundary line. Do you know what I'm saying? I cannot decide when it gets uncomfortable for me or when I feel um, like I'm hurting someone's feelings that I therefore move the boundary line out a little further to accommodate for those feelings. Now I want to prove it to you. So you've got Genesis chapter 1 and, and a little bit of Genesis 2 right there on your notes. You, have, you see some blanks there in the scripture, yes? So we're going to go through together and we're going to find purpose and provision and perimeter in the original design. Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And I'm going to um, challenge you this session and next session. If you do not know, like know that you know that you know the first three chapters of Genesis, you do not know the Bible. It is the, mo it, it is the foundation of everything that would come. And if you do not understand that, ask for help. Get a good commentary and study those first three chapters because it is the answer to pretty much every question you're asking. So let's read through it just a little bit. And I'm going to give you the first one and then I'm going to ask for your help. See if you can find the others. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So right there you see your purpose. 
There's a purpose that we as a human being, all humanity is made in the image of God. We carry God with us and in us. We are the very likeness of God. So that is our purpose, is to live like that, to live like that. Let's keep going. And let them have dominion. Okay, what do you think that one is? That we would have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. If we have dominion, what does that mean? What? That's a purpose. That's a purpose. We're in charge. God has given us some a job to do and we join him in some of the work that he is doing so we have a purpose but we have a purpose over specific things the fish the birds the livestock the earth um, vegetation and whatnot creeping things so then what would that if we have only authority over specific things what would that then tell us we have a perimeter in other words we do not have authority or dominion we don't have power constructs over human people right okay Genesis chapter 2 verse 5 when no bush of the field was yet in the land no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground okay make a note of that there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay, what has God just given? It's provision. Provision. He has given man the, his very breath of life and remember that beautiful Hebrew Greek word really the Hebrew the English gets it wrong we don't do it justice life is a threefold it's a psychological a social and a physical well-being it's all in one that life in us is wrapped up in all three parts and so that is what when he breathes that in to man man is totally and fully in the ideal quality of life, the fullness of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. All right, but what do you think goes there? The Lord God put the man, so remember, there wasn't a man to work it, and so now there is a man, and he puts him in a specific place, so therefore he now, man has a purpose. He's got work to do. The Bible talks a lot about work. In other words, get up and do something. You're here to do something. So let your hands move. Don't be lazy. Don't be idle. Don't let your, you know, don't Netflix binge too much. Every now and then I'll join you. But it, and then verse 15, let's jump to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Um, so now what does man have? He has a, keep, it's the same that you just answered, purpose. 
Oh, I missed one, didn't I? I'm sorry. Let me go back. Verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for the food. So what is God now giving? Provision. Good. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. They get everything. You may eat of every tree in the garden. What's he giving them? Provision. You have so much provision. You have everything you could possibly need to sustain your life. But, but, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So we have a perimeter. All right, so you see these three things in play for love. Okay, so humans, all of us, functioning in the likeness of God, when you're loving someone well, this is what you're going to have all three things in play at the same time. You're going to have all of these boxes checking. Okay, number one in your notes, I want you to see something about the perimeter. If God did not place the perimeter of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to be mean or unkind, but to make it clear that created beings are not capable of or responsible for defining what is good and what is evil. This changes a little bit for us because now we see this from love because you will hear a, a conversation around, well, if God is so good, why did he put a tree that you couldn't eat? Because <laughs> it's, it's love. Because we need primers. We cannot create our definitions of what is bad and good. That's why it's really, really harmful and painful when you tell people they are bad. When you tell your kids you're bad. That is so damaging to someone's identity and, and concept of self in Christ. It's even damaging to say you're wrong because it's this blanket statement. And it says that your subjective definition of what is good and bad is what you are now putting onto them. It's very unloving. Instead of, you know, God really in himself creates the definition for what is good and what is bad. Because God only can do that because God only loves perfectly. Because God wants every single person that you encounter to come to know him and love him. And we don't want that. I mean, I wish that we did. I wish that were true. That there is a, I mean, I think we grow and we mature. But in my 20s, I can tell you like five people that I had on a list that I, I would never have said, oh yeah, I want them to flourish because they had deeply wounded me and they had deeply hurt me. So God is the only one who can write these rules that we live by because he's the only unconditional love that loves perfectly and wants ev everything he is doing is to bring the worst of the worst, whatever your definition is of that, to him. So he gives us perimeter. And the reason that I want to bring this up is because our culture for whatever we want to say we're in a battle for, we are definitely in a battle for definition. What is defined? What is right and wrong? What is good? What is holy? What is just? What is justice? Um, we could go on and on because uh, <laughs> you may not want to be trapped into this right now, but if you're on a mission to know the Lord, 
more, you're going you're gonna to get there. You're going to fall there eventually, and it's very uncomfortable. Um, but but it, when you say you believe that God's word is absolute, it means that you literally believe the word of God. That it is literal truth, and its design is literal. Like, there's no room for exaggeration or subjective reality. It, we're believing the word based on what the word says, and it's going to come up against some of our, our greatest prejudices and biases that we develop over the course of our life. But we are moving away as a culture from a literal definition of God's word, and we are starting to create... Men are starting to create their own definition of who God is, what love is, what truth is. For example, 73 million abortions occur worldwide each year based on someone's definition of human life. There are more slaves today Today, in 21st century America, there are more slaves today than were seized from Africa in four centuries of the transatlantic slave trade. 27 million people live in slavery today based on one's definition of human value. The divorce rate for professing Christians is now at 50%. One in four women and one in, one in nine men experience severe spousal physical violence with one in three women and one in four men experiencing some kind of emotional or verbal abuse by a spouse based on one's definition of spiritual authority and submission. In the 1950s, not that long ago, 5% of girls and 10% of boys in high school were sexually active. Today, 70% of girls and 80% of boys are sexually active. 50% of all men and women under the age of 30 cohabitate prior to marriage. And 54% of professing Christians believe that casual sex outside of marriage is acceptable based on one's definition of sexual purity. 1.4 million adults in the U.S. identify as transgender, meaning a person's identity and gender does not correspond with their birth sex. There are now more than 78 gender-neutral pronouns based on one's definition of gender. And for millennium, civilizations, let me, let me just choose some harder words there, Casey. For millennium, civilizations have defined marriage as exclusively a permanent union of a man and a woman. But in 2013, our Supreme Court struck down every provision in the Defense of Marriage Act, and in 2015, legalized same-sex marriage across the United States, requiring all states to issue and recognize marriage license for same-sex couples. One of the most painful things that came out of this particular case was that we had a Justice Anthony Kennedy, and he, in the report, um, asserted this, that men and women who vote for the defense of marriage are acting in the intent to harm and set forth a wave of, of redefinition 
that proponents of traditional marriage are now enemies of the human race, intending to harm, humiliate, and injure same-sex couples. So now we see a complete definition of, of what it is to be a Christian and then voice that we believe the Bible is absolute truth. Now we are intending to harm, humiliate, and injure. And you would think that it's, it's, it's people like this, Justice Anthony Kennedy, these big, you know, political powers. You would think it's actually those people that have the biggest voice in all of this, with the most power, with the most influence, and the most money. But it's not. It's actually not. Those with no voice speak the loudest. And Christians have been painfully silent on these issues for far too long. Most Christians who default to silence or fear in conversations around these cultural compromises like spousal abuse, gender roles, sexual purity, sanctity of life, they're not bigots. There are some that are a stain on church culture but I just want to contend with you that in our silence it is not that we hate people or that we have intent to harm or that we are, are being bigots. It is simply that we are weak Bible scholars. That is it. If you remain silent or fearful to engage this conversation, it is simply that you do not know your word. Because if you know the word and believe the word, you are grateful to be in these conversations. You are, you are in them. You are finding them. You are befriending people who would say this about us, and you are learning from them, and you are hearing from them, and you are loving them where they are. You're not scared. It doesn't frustrate you. Number two in your notes, in our silence, we have allowed room for the culture to define principles of love, truth, and identity. And in the name of inclusion, some churches have adopted the motto, if you can't beat them, join them. Listen, I want you to know that this is incredibly personal and painful to so many people. This is not just those people over there. For a large majority of you listening, this is not just some people over there. These are people in your own home. These are people in your circle, at your workplace, in your student groups. This is deeply personal and painful for you to think about speaking the truth in love in some of these circles. And, and, and this is never, that pain is not dismissed by Jesus. It's not downplayed or... But he is telling us the truth of what it will look like to be Christians who speak truth and love. Matthew 10, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him know himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And on and on, Jesus would tell us that this life of being a Christian in our culture and standing, staking our claim in the word of God as absolute authority would be like death. 
It would feel like giving up ourselves daily, bearing a burden, picking up a cross and putting it on ourselves and and cutting ourselves out of some circles that we don't want to. I mean, what mother wants to tell their child, I cannot advocate and affirm the life that you are living? Zero mothers want to do that. As a mother, I can tell you that. But here's what I want to encourage you in. Number three, any compromise of God's original design assumes the Spirit of God no longer lives in a Christian which is able to make us obey. So let me say that better. When we are silent, when we step out of these conversations, or when we get on the other extreme and we actually become bigots who hate and we just stake our claim and you're wrong and you're going to hell. That grates all over me. That is so painful and not at all how Jesus would approach it. When we go to those far wide gaps, we are compromising the gospel of Christ, number one, but we're also assuming the Spirit of God no longer works. Because the Spirit of God actually helps us obey. The Spirit of God actually works in the hearts and lives of other people. We can actually trust it. So we don't have to compromise because we believe the Spirit is at work. You have to decide what love is. You do, for yourself. You have to decide if love is telling them the best way to know God and the best way to know themselves is to live in accordance with what the Scripture says. And, when you, and we also have to recognize, when we are asking someone to do that, we are also saying, and your feelings will have to be denied over and over again until it's a habit, over and over again until it's a default. You will actually have to. When a, when a boyfriend who is a Christian is, is in, a, in the car with you and it is moving physically and your bodies are preparing for sex, you are going to want to have sex. Everything in you as a woman is going to want to have sex, especially if you love him and you've been dating for a long period of time and he's aroused and you're aroused and you are literally going to have to cut it off and deny your feelings and your attraction and step out of the car and take a breath and a cold shower. (laughs) But you see, like, this is a loving relationship. Let's just assume they're getting married. Let's just assume they really love each other and they love Jesus, but they both want to have sex. And Jesus is going to ask you to stop and consider him better. Consider him better. I'm telling that to my 17-year-old self right now inside me. Oh, how I wish I had considered him better. And that that the pathway forward to my thriving, to my quality of life, was not sexual promiscuity. He was actually better. And and, And also, 
whether you're heterosexual or whether you're homosexual. He is asking you not to have sex outside of the, the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. So our attraction may very truly be for the same sex. Our attraction may very truly be for the heterosexual sex and be very real. And God is asking you to deny because he is better and he has a way. He has a way for you. Okay, he's in, I'm about to encourage you so much because he has a very clear way for us to live and thrive. And we've got to decide if that's how the love we're going to present. So please remember this love that you believe in Christ, this absolute authority that you give to the word of God, it is for freedom. <laughs> it is because you are free. You don't do this begrudgingly. You don't do this, you know. You do this because you, you want them to have freedom. And you know that anything outside of what God is asking us to do in Scripture and has set forth for us in Scripture is not a way for us to thrive. It's not a way for us to flourish. It brings chaos and disorder and darkness to our minds, to our hearts, to the people around us. And so parents... This is a word for us. Am I going to let the feelings of my kids dictate the mood of my home? Am I going to let the feelings of my children make decisions for my household and what? <laughs> Absolutely not. Are they valid? Are they important? Well, no, they're not valid. They're 13. Come on. <laughs> Are they important? Yes. Is there a way and a kindness for me to address their feelings, not dismiss their feelings? Listen, let me just give a quick little sidebar to anybody in here who is single and will probably be married and be a mom of a young one or a mom of a young one. Please don't do time out. Please don't do that. That, that does not accomplish a thing. In fact, in, in, so when your kids are hurting, you bring them in. And when, especially if they've rebelled, especially especially if they have done something that you can't imagine them doing. Um, if you have a 13, 14, 15-year-old and he comes to you and says he's looked at pornography and it, it absolutely demolishes your heart, and what you want to do, what your nature is to do, is to go, I can't even deal with you right now. You just go and you think about what you did. Does that work for, does that work for us? To go and think about what we did and recycle the shame of our choices in the, in the isolation of our bedroom so timeout doesn't work. You take your child into you and you look in their eyes and you tell them you love them. And you ask them why they felt the need to do this. Tell me about what you were feeling. Tell me, and you acknowledge their feelings. You give them value in the room. You sit in there and you look in their eyes. Tell me why you did this. Now, how can I help you? Let me help you because here's what's for you. And you love them and you love them and you tell them how Jesus loves them and you point them back and you read scripture with them. I don't care if they're three, read scripture with them. And then you lay down the law. In your love, you say, son, your phone is gone. The internet is gone. 
your car is gone. I mean, if, depending on whatever the situation is, you, you put a parameter and you say, my job is to love you and you don't have to like me. And then you get those decisions. But, but you see how we're, it's for freedom. You want them to be free. You don't want them to be in shame and condemnation and making these choices because they're trying to be accepted by the cool kids. Are you kidding me? But us pushing out and not pulling in is not the answer. And us asking somebody to go think about their sin and not talking to them about their sin is not the answer. Feelings cannot guide. They can gauge us, but they cannot guide. Okay, let's keep going. Genesis 1.27. I'm going to go back to that one. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created, the, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, <laughs> multiply, and fill this earth and subdue it. Wow. Go have a great time. <laughs> look at the energy. Look at the adventure. Look at the passion that God gives us. I mean, come on, have you read Song of Solomon? There is not a single movie that can touch the passion and the romance and the love of that book. And God had every bit of his hand in all of this. You are blessed as a man and a woman. And by the way, that Hebrew word is man and woman. There's not any great, it doesn't change. It's a man with male anatomy. It's a woman with female anatomy. That's exactly what the word means. I've created two different types of humans. They have different functions, but they are one in me. They are equal in value to me. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them. And, he, and God said, go have sex, go make babies. And, and go enjoy the earth because you have so much authority over it. You, you get to you know, you get to grow gardens and plant things and eat real food. Ride a horse if you want to. I don't know how they did that, but they, they did that. I mean, you know Adam, I mean, naked too. Wow. That's a whole nother message right there. The, I just want you to see the adventure because sometimes we get so wrapped up in... God, God is mean and he's got all these rules that we just miss how great he is and how much freedom he's given us and how much love he's given us to enjoy one another. Okay. So let me read you now. I'm going to, I'm going to, that, this is God's word. And now I'm going to read you the summation and I need so much grace because my eyeballs hurt after all of the content that I in, in, attempted to download this week in my mind, I went to every, every little area that I could find that would be an actual credible source for the LGBTQ community, and also any, any denomination, as far as a church denomination, that now um, is advocating for LGBTQ marriage and or uh, leadership in their church. So I was reading all of those statements, those statements of belief. And then I was also reading things. Uh, so mainly I was pulling from the Human Rights Campaign and the LGBTQ Advocacy Center, which are very, two very credible resources. 
And then I was noticing that the same language was being used pretty much repeatedly on a lot of different outlets. So like on, on CNN and news sources, they would just say the same thing. I'm telling you all that in, in an attempt to somehow help you know that I did my very best effort to find the most credible source. So I did not in any way disrespect um, this particular group of people. Okay, so gender identity, according to the Human Rights Campaign and the and this other sources I mentioned, is the innermost concept of self as male, female, a blend of both or neither, how individuals perceive themselves and what they call themselves. One's gender identity can be the same or different from their sex assigned at birth. Now, I just want you to see right off the bat that there is a new definition for our gender identity. And this is separate in this world than sexual identity. So as a, as a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, we actually don't separate the two. We don't separate gender or sex. They're one. But in LGBTQ, that it is separate. That's, that's a horrible way of helping you. Um, I gave you all of these definitions because I wanted you to have them as information and knowledge because we need to be knowledgeable around all of these terms. Here's what was interesting to me. We actually have a definition. If you are a heterosexual person, we have a definition. I want you to read, though. Just read how we are framed in this definition. Heterosexism is the societal, cultural, institutional, and individual beliefs and practices that privilege heterosexual and disparage LBGTQ people. The critical element that differentiates heterosexism from prejudice and discrimination is the use of institutional power and authority to support prejudices and enforce discriminatory behaviors in systemic ways, in systematic ways with far reaching outcomes and effects. And if you are confused, so was I. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that does not paint us in a good light. All right. If you read these and you are, you should go to the Human Rights Campaign and LGBTQ Advocacy Center. You should actually have friends in your world that are LGBTQ so that you can ask them personally and go to lunch with them and just get them to, to share with you how they form this belief. But we see a very, very clear distinction in gender being male and female and as a Bible-believing Christian, we are choosing to identify with our gender at birth and therefore choosing to deny any feelings of sexual attraction or desire to change our identity or concept of our identity. Does that make sense? So um, how do we respond? I don't want to miss this. I don't want my time to run up and miss this. So I'm going to keep moving forward. I've given you some content for you to learn. Well, number one, Christian, we cannot respond with frustration or fear <laughs> because God is still on the throne and people's pain is real and the Bible is still true and all people, all people, regardless of heterosexual or LGBTQ community, all people are valuable to God and loved by him. 
And the good news for us is that all people actually want the good news. God placed eternity in the heart of all mankind. They know there is something more for them and they long for it. And the good news of the gospel is what it is. And we have it to offer them. And there will never be a time where they do not learn, yearn for that. So if our, we just, we can't be, y'all, we can't panic here. Come on. This is nothing new to God. <laughs> Go read the Bible. All this has been going on a very long time. And so we just can't, we can't get into a reactive mode here. We can become educated. We can learn. We can be kind. We can be gracious. And so let's not be overwhelmed. And, let's, and in, in that posture of not being in a threat position, we're not going to use words like, you are wrong because the Bible said so. We're not going to say stuff like that if we're not threatened. Or you're going to hell because of, we're not going to say stuff like that. Because we ne we've never determined that. Regardless of who we're talking to and what their political position is or their sexual position, we have never determined who is going to heaven or who is going to hell. Our lives are to be lived <laughs> believing that we are going to heaven. And therefore, people want what we have. But we don't know if a person is going to know Jesus after 20 or 30 years in a same-sex marriage. Maybe that's what God uses to show them the gospel. We don't know. And we have to take that, that posture in, in engaging our world. Secondly, as a, as a Bible-believing Christian, isn't this interesting that I'm having to say a Bible-believing Christian? Because we're even redefining terms in our, in our Christianity. Uh, we believe that gender is physically grounded, not psychologically discerned. <coughs> so we actually believe from Genesis 1, the original order is there is a man and there is a woman. Number three, we believe that gender identity and sexual identity are not separate but one, and that the Spirit of God empowers us to deny, flee from, or take captive any feelings of attraction, of sexual desire that would compromise the best display of God's image in both our gender and sexuality. We take Genesis 1 and 2, two literally, not figuratively. For example, we believe that we as a human are here to represent the likeness of God. And so our actual life helps people see God and who he is in his nature. And one thing we know about God in his nature is he produces life. He always produces life. That's the story of redemption. That's the story of redemption. He is producing something always in who we are. And therefore, from the beginning, he made a man and a woman to be able to produce life. He put two bodies together that could function out in this command because he commands them to go do it. Literally. Go enjoy yourself and, and make babies. And, and here you are welcome to say, what about infertility? What about, um, you know, people who cannot have children? And please know this is near and dear to my heart. I have had dear friends and family members who have, are, so far, are infertile for many, many years. And personally, a year, uh, a year-long season of miscarriages for me, so it is very painful. Our bodies are very broken in sin, and I'm going to talk about that next week. This is kind of pre-fall session, and the next week is going to be post-fall, uh, sin, fall. So our bodies are, are really messed up, but that doesn't change our ability 
to be able to. Do you know what I mean? Like the Lord could open your womb at any moment and you now, through your anatomy, can create life. So that's very important. I mean, God's not, he's, he's not disordered. He's not trying to mess with us. He's literally just saying, this is the best way to know me. <laughs> if you want to know me, this is the best way. And then finally, we believe that unless each gender has something the other needs, one will dominate the other in very distorted ways. Therefore, both married and single men and women are commanded to submit to one another because, and here's the kicker, marriage exists as the primary human example of how God loves us through the submission of Jesus Christ on the cross. There will be a ton of space, and I'm going to talk about this next week, for singlehood. And Paul will say, some of you are going to be called to be single, and you probably should be. And then the disciples will say, well, yeah, we should have just been single. That would have been much easier. Yeah. Yeah. Easier in some ways. So some of you will, will have the calling and, and the gift of singlehood. Some of you maybe just for a season. But Genesis 1, 1 and 2 is clear that there is a, a picture that God is allowing in the human world of how he loves us through the gospel of Christ. And that is a marriage of a man and a woman. Because their differences, they're one in nature, but they dip, they're different in function. And in that function, they submit to one another. They love one another. And so there is no greater example of a promise, a covenant-keeping God, than marriage of a man and a woman because you have the Father, Son, Spirit, one in nature, different in function. And you have Father God and the Son, His Son, Jesus, submitting willfully to Him. So now we will see that this is what you cannot get around. So listen, there is a million and one articles out there from uh, mainly the Lutheran denomination were the first to, to change some of this. Giving every type of translation in Greek and Hebrew around the word homosexual and what is heterosexual and what is man and woman and changing it. But I'm going to tell you what I cannot find if you are understanding marriage to represent the way that Christ loves the church, you can't get around it. You cannot get around Genesis 1 and 2. And no one really tries, which is interesting. The only argument that I can find, and you can prove me wrong, you can certainly, I would love to know if you have another one, but the main argument that I find is that because, yes, man and woman, from Genesis 1 and 2, but because Jesus himself did not marry, you do not need to be in a man-woman marriage in order to fully display the image of God. Did you follow me with that? So the LGBTQ community is saying for un under the umbrella of church and denomination that Jesus himself did not engage in sex, and did not marry a woman. Therefore, we have permission now to marry man-man, woman-woman, because we in and of ourselves as man and woman display fully the image of God. And here's the truth. We do. 
You as a single woman fully display the image of God. You as a single man fully display the image of God. But together you display the gospel. And, and there's no one really coming after that. It just doesn't land. There's nowhere to go with it because scripture is so clear. Let's keep going. I'm going to come back to some of this probably next week. Darn it. I've given you a couple of names there. It's very short, but these are really trusted. If you want to look into to more, these are some really trusted names you should research and read, and they have great podcasts. Um, every single one of them have much more expertise in this field than I do. Genesis 2.20, read with me. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now this is a beautiful picture that we stand on as a biblical uh, lens of how to do life and see the world and human flourishing. These are two very different people. God could have used dust to create the woman, but he didn't. What did he use? The, man. the actual bone of a man. So he, God is showing us, you are meant to be different. I am designing you different. Had I wanted you to be the same, I would have just used dust again. But I took bone out because there was not a suitable helper fit. The only one fit for man was a woman. And you would now both be equal in value, but have needs that neither one can fill without the other. This is the total package. Woman's going to be able to do things and meet needs and care in ways Adam, that you will never be able to. And so let me perform the first wedding ceremony and bless this sexual experience. Verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I mean, what if wedding ceremonies were that fast? <laughs> That's the way God did it. And the man and his wife were both naked. This is their honeymoon night. And they were not ashamed. Wow. See, the, the fall had not occurred, so there'd been no embarrassment, there'd been no victimization, there'd been no rape or abuse, there'd been no rejection or distortion at this point, and there was no shame. They were in honesty before one another and before God. And this is the first wedding ceremony. So here's what we believe about marriage. That man and woman are created in equal worth and dignity before God and before one another. Don't ever doubt that. This world and culture will cause you to doubt. <laughs> and, and quite frankly, fallen men will cause you to doubt. But you are of equal worth and value before God. Number two, God intends for man and woman to uphold their equality through the display of their complementary differences. Through the display of how we are different. So we show that value and equality in how we're different, not in how we're the same. 
God reserves marriage only for one man and woman because, that's the therefore back in Genesis 2, no other helper will be fit to best display God's nature. Man is tasked. Did you notice that God says, uh, leave your mother and father before there's a mother and father to leave? This is why we know it's a marriage ceremony. God is already putting in play what this is going to look like, and he's going to task the man with the responsibility of choosing his wife as his primary human relationship and to break away from potentially stronger generational and ancestral bonds. So your whole loyalty goes to your woman, man. Wee! That's going to get some mother-in-laws fired up. Marriage is not a product of social evolution, but defined by God in literal and clear terms. One mortal life fully shared by one man and one woman in equality, dignity, trust, and honesty. Marriage is mainly intended to introduce and affirm the gospel. This is your last point, and I'll wrap up. Not merely for sexual pleasure, not for personal enjoyment, and not for baby-making, Marriage is intended to affirm and introduce people to the gospel. Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Okay, so I'm going to intro next week because this is the only way we can submit. This Philippians verse is the whole point. This is what marriage is about. Singlehood, this is what you're about. This is the only way you'll submit because there's a big... Submission is not just between man and wife. And I've given you submission in a big grand view. We're all called to do this. Children to parents, citizens to government, wives to husbands, employees to employers, church members to elders, and Christians to each other, and all believers to Christ. So we all have a role to play in submission. And it's going to um, hit at our pride every single time. And we're going to want to revolt and that's where you see these dominant forces of male chauvinism and feminism rising to the front because we want it to be about us and we want the power and it's our rights and it's what we deserve. But that's only because we've made a mess of this as a church. You don't need male chauvinism and you don't need feminism if we do this right. Because we submit to one another gladly. The way, do you see what just I took out of that for you, wife or future wife? You read Philippians 2, 5 through 9 when you are struggling with your man, and probably rightfully so, and sidebar, he's probably wrong. I cannot tell people that they are wrong. No, you're right, Jennifer. <laughs> but he probably is. <laughs> Biblical definition of submission is to yield to another in love. To yield to another in love. And I'm going to talk all about what that means as we keep moving forward next week. But I'm, I'm going to encourage you to meditate on this Philippians passage because if you see Jesus doing this, 
not my will, but your will be done, sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane and begging his father to take this cup from him. Please take this cup from me. So now this in perspective of, of the worst of the worst, like in marriage, an unbelieving spouse who's been unfaithful to you in marriage, a so-called believing spouse who is emotionally or physically abusive to you, this would be like death to live with this, to choose this, to hope for reconciliation with this, like death. And this is in a sense what Jesus is saying. He's saying, God, if you can take this from me, please take this from me. But, and here's the submission part, not my will. Your will be done. And you're going to feel like this in all of these conversations culturally moving forward. You're going to feel like, please take this from me. I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. I don't want to say this. I don't want to rub somebody the wrong way. I don't want to cast somebody out. And it's going to feel like death. And you're going to have to say this over and over, not my will. But yours be done. Father God, will you give us the wisdom and the strength and the discernment to believe and trust your word is good. That's the only way we're going to be able to move forward. If you are actually who you say you are. So give us the heart to know you, to read our Bible more, to believe it because we read it. We love you so much. Thank you for meeting us where we are and it's in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight.